Hello, and welcome to season one of the London Writers Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we interview Mike Michalowicz. Mike is the author and creator of Profit First, both a book and a methodology used around the world to help, in his words, eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. We first heard about Mike because he is a voice of reason in the startup world, but later we saw that his model was being adapted for creatives as well. When we looked at many of our writers in our community, many of them are freelancers. So we thought we'd bring in Mike to talk about both his writing and the Profit First methodology that's changed so many people's lives. In Mike's work, he writes what he knows. He starts by testing his ideas in his multi-million pound businesses and then shares what he finds, the highs and the lows with the world, all in the service of helping fellow entrepreneurs. His other books include The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, Fix This Next, Clockwork, Surge, and The Pumpkin Plan. And it's no wonder Simon Sinek calls him the patron saint of entrepreneurs. What kudos from Mr. Sinek. In this episode, we also talk about Mike's first book, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. And he tells us how he managed to go from having a house full of stacks of books to selling 100,000 copies through guerrilla marketing. The things he did include going into a bookstore and actually putting his books on the shelves, even though they weren't listing him. And why he believes if you build it, they won't come. You have to relentlessly market it. We talk about the concepts in his life-changing book, Profit First, including how to create systems to make managing your money easy. Believe me, I'm not someone who likes the idea of systems to make managing your money easy, but he makes it really simple. He makes it doable for someone like me. And that's one of the reasons we brought him in. He talks about how to pay yourself well and how we should all be making a profit, no matter how much we earn and how important that is to the health of our business, whether or not we're one person, freelance business or a bigger company. A few writers in our community now use this system and it's transformed their finances. So we can't recommend it more highly. We talked to Mike about how he's dealt with self-doubt. Surprisingly, he has had self-doubt, but he's slowly built up his confidence to speak and read in public. And he tells us about how he did that. And as you'll find, Mike is such a positive, upbeat force of nature and really just a kind and caring guy. And if that wasn't enough, he's that pragmatic voice of reason we all need and want in our lives. We really enjoyed his energy, his practical advice about marketing our work, gaining confidence, looking after our money better, and everything in between. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy this interview with Mike Michalowicz. great to have you, Mike. And on this show, in, in the interviews that we do, we interview writers, authors across all, all the board, not just authors, though, bloggers, poets, screenwriters, on the craft of writing and also on the art of building a successful career as a writer. And yeah. so our community might not be one that you typically speak to, although maybe we're wrong in that assessment because we're a gang of, like I said, poets, bloggers, authors, freelancers, creatives. And so few of us would call ourselves entrepreneurs. And so the reason we wanted to bring you not only have you have a body of work, six books and counting, I'm suspecting, 
You've also developed some really powerful concepts, in particular in Profit First and some of the others that we think the writers in this community can really benefit from to help sort out our own finances. And so that's what we hope to talk to today, not only your career, but also a lot of the powerful concepts that you introduce in your, in your book. Thank you, Matt. I'm excited. I really believe in writers. Writers rule. You know, the work we do, it changes the world. If you think about some of the biggest shifts in the world, the, the rise of Christianity is because of written work, you know, in the Bible. If, if you look at current times and political shift and turmoil, it is influenced by what's written. And that will always be true. Just before we get started, I just wanted everyone to know that you as a writer have a responsibility. You can change the world and you can do tremendous good. In fact, I suspect that's your slant because you're here. You probably want to perpetuate good. And the written word is still the most powerful way. So let's, let's kick some ass, my friends. <laughs> Love that. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. It's funny. So my father's Gujarati, a Gujarati accountant, and he wanted me to be interested in finance. It took me decades and decades, and it wasn't until I came to your book that I finally was capable of looking at a spreadsheet. And that's one of the reasons I brought you in today is you've had such a profound impact on how I think about money. And Simon Sinek agrees with me that you're incredibly influential. In fact, he calls you the top contender for the patron saint of entrepreneurs. That's quite an honor. Oh my um, gosh. What do you think yeah. he meant by this? How did you take it? Well, first of all, I was taken aback in such a beautiful way. I, I never expected that. Simon and I actually, we both wrote our first books at the same time. His title, you may recognize mine, you may not. He wrote this book called Start With Why, which went on to be such a massive success and continues to be in such a powerful book. I wrote a book called The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which you may not recognize. And that was our launch, but we were actually launching together. Uh, we became friends. And I remember one particular day we were departing ways. He, he has a loft in New York City. I live right outside New York City. We were meeting at his, his uh, studio and we're leaving and he said, hey, never forget this. You got my back and I got yours. And I said, yep, I got your back, you got mine. While our paths have gone different ways, every so often we share a same publisher, Penguin Books, and uh, we run into each other occasionally. And when I came out with my most recent book, I said, hey, would you be willing to check it out? And he, he says, yeah. And he, he just, he knows my journey from, from when we've crossed paths and seen what, done, what I've done. So that was his assessment. I, I, he just said, this is, this is what I feel about you. And it was beautiful, powerful. I can't believe it. The lesson here is those relationships from 10, Simon was not recognized. He, he didn't have a book yet. Those relationships with each other that you have today, some people in this room are going to have breakout success. Maybe all of us. Some of us absolutely will. Those relationships can come back and, and serve you. You know, That's what it I did. I like that. I like that a lot. That's really true. That's beautiful. In the vein of Simon Sinek, start with why. So in your book, Profit First, you say that your purpose or your, your why is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. So I guess in the, the topic of purpose, how did you just come to discover that as something that you wanted to be your purpose? Maybe it's evolved since you wrote that, but how, how did you come to discover that as, as part of your mission? Yeah, it's, uh, I'll show you how steadfast I'm in it. It's everywhere. So right there. Eradicate oh, wow. <laughs> poverty. On my wrist, I wear it every single day. That wrapped band says eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. It's wrapped on me. Wow. I, I may you know, burn it into me. How it came about was I dreamed one day if I had all the money in the world and I didn't have to make money, I would become an author because I just think it's such a cool, impactful thing. 
the problem with that dream, and maybe why that dream is, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? It's wonderful because it allows you to imagine outside the confines of what you're doing now. The problem is it presumes you need all the money in the world to do that, and therefore becomes a block. Well, I found there's a complimentary question. There's a question if you had no money in this world, what would be your vocation to bring about survival, support? What would you live off of? And when the answer is the same, I dream of being an author and that will be my vocation to support my dream, then you have a calling. It's something you got to do. And for me, I'll never forget it. It was February 14th, 2008, which was Valentine's Day. I uh, had grown some businesses. I'd sold some businesses and I, I was just chock full of myself, full of arrogance and ignorance because I had very early success in my life. I, I became a, a millionaire in my early 30s, self-made out of building businesses. Why well, I started this third business because I knew all and it was a calamity. I conveniently leave it off of my CV. I was an angel investor. I sucked at it. Actually, I call myself now the angel of death. That was probably the only thing I could do. I could destroy a lot of businesses and I wiped myself out financially. I lost everything. I lost my home. I lost my possessions, everything. I came home to my family. I have three children, my wife. And on February 14th, that was the day I got the call from the accountant. He's like, you, you got to either declare bankruptcy or liquidate. And I decided on liquidate. And I came home sobbing to my family saying, I, I can't believe this, but we're losing our home and we're losing our things. They didn't know. They were shocked because I've been lying to them by omission. I think, at least for me, I don't know if, for you, but there's that sense when we're in struggle that there's going to be this magic moment. Something's going to save us. A big, the big customer's going to come or someone's going to suck up all of our work and pay us big money for it or, or whatever, or an investor would save us or something would turn, but nothing had turned. So I had to liquidate. And uh, I write about this in my book. I, I had to face my daughter. She was nine years old at the time. She used to go horseback riding. And I told her, I said, I, I can't afford the 20 or $25 for a group session. You can't go horseback riding. And I'm sobbing and she's crying. As I said that, she just stood up. I get emotional as I think about it. And she just ran out of the room. And I thought, I was convinced she was running away. And, and I also understood it because I wanted to run away. When we're in that experience, the, the darkest spot of our lives, whatever it may be, mine was financial, but I, there's so many darker spots, abuse and all these horrible things. When we're there, the solution, at least for me, is running away. Like I, I wanted to go somewhere where no one knew me, that I could get a fresh start. So my daughter, the, the response of running away from me, that she was so scared and disgusted by how I'd failed the family. I get it. But she was actually not running away. She was running to her bedroom as fast as she could to grab her piggy bank. And she ran back to me and she puts it on our table and she looks up at me with these big eyes and she goes, daddy, daddy. She goes, I know you can't provide for us, but I will be the provider. <laughs> so I think about it, I'm getting all. That moment became the seed for a turning moment. I realized, I, well, the, the emotion was, I was so proud of her. I was so ashamed of myself. I didn't know what I thought I knew. I, I knew I had to learn so much. That triggered a, a trajectory in my life to become an author. Now, just to put a little bow tie on that story, it wasn't like the next morning I woke up and said, I'm an author, I've got this now. Went through depression, started drinking a lot. I mean, I drink socially, but I started boozing to medicate uh, insomniac. What I also did was start journaling. That was my introduction to authorship. And, and journaling is, is the guy's word for diary, uh, by the way. <laughs> I just started maintaining a diary. 
that started to become the foundation for my first book. Profit First actually came out of that diary because I, I wrote down, why am I not profitable? Why can't I make money consistently? Why does it fluctuate? I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one that has this problem. I have to find the solution. I found a solution for myself and started writing about it. I still have that, that journal. That was 12 years ago. So I've wow. been an author ever since. That's incredible. So journaling is something that we love. We talk about morning pages. I don't know if you're familiar with Julia Cameron's practice of morning pages. I'm not. Have you? Basically, it's three pages upon waking. Freehand, basically pen to paper and oh, just cool. write kind of brain dump. When you would journal, would it literally just be a brain dump or would it be you said these questions and then you'd start to try to explore the answers. Did you have any prompts or, or what did that journaling actually look like for you? Initially, I started off with prompts and it failed me. Initially, I called it the success journal because I was in a depressed state. My goal was to address my depression. I thought if I wrote down everything that I'm you know, successful, like in, in literally like, like got out of bed this morning, ching, you know, I thought I would start getting momentum and it wasn't working. Actually, I get more angry at myself. Then a friend of mine just came to me. He goes, no, no, no. I mean, like your morning, just like your morning pages. He goes, just write down anything you feel when you feel it. He goes, the cheapest psychologist you'll ever hire or psychotherapist is a journal. And it probably the most effective. He, he said, just write everything down. So I started writing down. I remember times so angry. I was angry at God. I'm like, God, I hate you. Actually, more violent words. Tearing at the paper as I'm saying it. Hatred for myself. Pure disgust in who I was. There was moments like I had like, after I write this stuff down, just whatever I wanted to dump from my mind, sometimes there was like five minutes of clarity. It was like, whoa, okay. And I could work for five minutes. Other times it was five hours. Sometimes it was like five days. And I would drift back into it. And then I start journaling again. So the journaling was an outlet to give me relief and allow me to start focusing. That's what it did. And miraculously, I shouldn't say miraculously, out of there as I reviewed it, it's like, oh my gosh, there's sources for ideas in here for my books. And so I'm curious, how did that, how did you lead from that journaling to the toilet paper entrepreneur? Because you self-published that book as well. So uh, self-published, yeah, yeah, yeah. Self-publishers rule. Benjamin Franklin was a self-publisher. <laughs> so so was Henry David Thoreau. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I think th- things go full cycle, right? So we go from self-published to mainstream. It's going back to self-publishing. I actually ran an analytic on what a publisher needs to do for an author to justify mainstream publishing. I used to say, what do I, what would I do if I had all the money in the world? The other question is, I had no money. Like I was broke, which is different than, than poor. I just want to be clear about that. I was broke, but I still had a mindset of, I have to make this work. I met with my wife and said, I, I've always dreamed of being an author. I want to write books. You know, she's like, what? <laughs> Authors don't make money. There's a lot of naysayers. I, I'm sure all of us on this call have experienced it. The day you make that declaration, I'm going to be a poet or an author, journalist, blogger, people are like, there's no money in that. I found a way to overcome that. And when the naysayers approach me, I, I say, well, tell me about your experience doing it. What I found is the vast majority of naysayers, almost all of them, have never done it before. So when someone said, do you be an author? That's crazy. I said, well, tell me about your experience doing it. So even to my wife, very carefully. She said, you're crazy. I said, well, well do you have experience doing it? Why, why do you say that? She says, no, no, I just, I just hear, I just know. I said, okay. I started talking with other people too. I said, it's crazy. The first person I talked to that said, that's an awesome idea. was a guy named Tim Ferriss, four hour work week. I ended up sitting in a room across from Tim Ferriss. I was aware of who he was. He had of course no idea who I was. I had a half hour of his undivided attention. I said, Hey, I'm, I'm becoming an author. 
what do you think about that? He's like, oh my gosh, get ready to be a millionaire. Not his exact words, but <laughs> here's someone who's been there. And I started listening very carefully of, of how to be my definition of successful in it and emulating him. I started seeking out people that have been successful and that started the toilet paper entrepreneur. Qualifying the naysayers. I'll tell you, if someone says, I've been an author for 20 years, don't do it. Listen to that person, learn from them. I'm not saying don't do it, but learn from them, but really mm-hmm. qualify the naysayers. That's why I did. Tim Ferriss was a spark for me to really go all in on toilet paper entrepreneur. And that started my trajectory as an author. Yeah. Am I right in thinking you had a stack of books at first in your house, but then later Penguin picked it up? Hmm. Don't buy, was it 20,000? I think it was 20,000 copies of your own book. Like, so this is how ignorant I was. In the nonfiction genre, business books, as an example, the average number of book sales for the lifetime of a book is under 200 books is the statistic I heard. And almost all those sales are back to the author themselves. Wow. You know, sometimes ignorance is bliss because I think I didn't know that one. So as I'm writing this, I'm like, well, in the U.S. alone, there's 30 million businesses, small businesses. Globally, there's now 300 million. So I'm like, you know, it's a pretty large set of customers. I think I'll sell 20,000 books probably within the first week or two. And based upon the print runs, if this is in queue, I can probably keep up with it. I didn't have any money. I begged, borrowed, and stole to get 20,000 books. On the first day of the launch, I sold zero bucks. And just to have real clarity around that, that means my own mother didn't buy a fucking book. (laughs) <laughs> That's how bad it was. We couldn't afford a house anymore, by the way. We had a rental, which was actually gifted to us. Friends of ours had moved out of the country for a few years. They needed a house sitter. They heard about our situation and basically granted us their house. Garage packed. I didn't need a box spring for my bed because it was boxes of books. I looked like a hoarder, but I will tell you how that did serve me. I was terrified. I was like, I got to sell these books. I did anything and everything. I did the most guerrilla stuff to move books. And I did. And Penguin noticed. The magic number, at least from my experience in nonfiction, if you can move 10,000 books in one year, hardcover print or softcover print, and registered through Nielsen, you know, the the Bowker Mm -hmm. system, uh, BookScan. And BookScan registers 10,000 sales within one year. That is something that publishers notice. I did that with Toy Paper Entrepreneur. Penguin actually called me. They said, hey, we, we heard about your book. Would you want to do something with us? Wow. Would you mind sharing some of those guerrilla tactics that you Oh, used? yeah. You've yeah. got 20,000 books. You're trying to move them. What, what worked? Here, yeah. I'll tell you, I, I believe more in guerrilla tactics than any other kind of marketing. I'll give you one hack. And I've told so many authors this and almost zero do it. And yet the return is potentially significant. I called Barnes and Nobles and said, hey, I'm a self-published author. And uh, I'd like to see if you carry my books. Back then, I don't know if they still do. They had a small business division. There was this person I talked to that was running it. I don't know if it was a literal laugh, but she couldn't get me off the phone fast enough. We don't carry self-published authors. The toilet paper entrepreneur, <laughs> good luck. You sold nothing. Get away. And so I'm not one to take no for an answer. Uh, I had all these books anyway, so that was my asset. I called uh, friends in my area and, and said, listen, would you be willing to take a case of books? A case was about 30 books and go to your local Barnes and Noble and stock the shelves. I mean, stock the shelves, not like sneak one book, like sneak in like 15 books, line them up in the business section and do this. And of course I was doing it myself too. It's the weirdest thing to go in with a back, like a heavy backpack. I'm walking, I'm, I'm not stealing books. I'm supplying books. 
Like what, what law am I breaking? Is it misappropriation of shelf space? Like I don't even know, but I'm sneaking into Barnes and Nobles, looking around, stocking the shelves. What happened was some people in some locations tried to buy the book. And I know this because I got a call from that same woman. This is about maybe two months after I, we started stocking shelves. The car ID pops up and it says Barnes and Nobles. My hand's like shaking. I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to get sued, right? So I'm like this, hello? And the first words out of her mouth, she goes, uh, we have a problem. And I'm like, oh my God, I said, what's the problem? She goes, um, apparently you have a book called The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur that's selling in our stores and we don't know how. And I'm like, this is shocking. She goes, we need to stock these books appropriately and immediately. We need 2,000 units delivered to our stores this week. Could you tell us who the distributor is? And I'm like, I don't even know what a distributor is. So I'm like, I, I don't have one. She goes, not a problem. She goes, here's a distributor we're going to line you up with. Here's what the order is. The PO is here. Get these books out. Coming to my house was a truck. I ran to Home Depot. I got a pallet. I'm stocking these books up. I wrapped it with plastic and the books were gone. Another author named Gary Vaynerchuk was just releasing a book called Crush It. This is right around Christmas time. I walked into the local Barnes and Nobles that I am at maybe two weeks or three weeks after the distributor received it. On the corner display, I meaning you walk down like the business aisle, there's these end caps displays, was the new release of Crush It and Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. I couldn't believe it. That launched the book. That and there was other things, but that started moving the book ridiculously. I subsequently have sold over 100,000 print copies of Toilet Paper wow. Entrepreneur. Wow, that's incredible. Jeez. Takes a lot of guts as well. And just, you know, here's the simple part is every person on this call could be doing that. This may be a different group. The other groups I've told, other authors I've told, oh my God, never do it. And then they, they lament, why aren't they, why, why isn't their book moving? We, we got to do something that breaks the mold. Hmm. Many things that break the mold. I, I'm walking up and down. We, we live in a Main Street USA type of town. There's maybe 50 stores, one street, and people walk it. There's tons of foot traffic. And I'm looking at the window displays of all these different stores, and everyone displays their items, whatever, you know, if it's a, if it's a jewelry store, you see jewelry, if it's clothing, you see clothing. And I'm like, what if I had a, my book in every single store? What if every single store you walked by, there was displayed among other things, my book dead center. That is remarkable and gets noticed. And so we just worked out a plan of how that's a win for the stores and a win for us. And we're just starting to execute that. You know, what can we do that's newsworthy? And maybe it won't be on mainstream news, but your local town, like, this is bizarre. What can we do that people will take notice? The thing is, the work we do is remarkable. I bet you it's extraordinary work. After you put your heart and soul into doing something extraordinary, you got to double the efforts into getting the word out. If you build it, they won't come. You have to build it and you have to market the living hell out of it relentlessly until they start recognizing it. And then they'll pick it up and start marketing it for you. I love how you've gone, you're going super local now with your next book, which is so interesting, it, just out the door in front of you. Uh, I just love that, that way of thinking. So th- I, well, thanks you know, for sharing I, that, Mike. I realize is whatever everyone else is doing probably won't work. Facebook ads, Amazon marketing, it, it's so saturated, it won't get noticed. AMS, I think they call it Amazon marketing services. Mm. We've tested it. We studied it. It is so saturated. It is, at least for us, 
a massive losing proposition. People definitely click it. People definitely buy the book. But what we realize is when we don't market it, people find the book, they buy it at the exact same rate and there's no cost associated with it. We said, okay, so that, that don't do what everyone else was doing. What is, that was no one else done. Funny thing is, and I'm actually doing this research for the books. I'm writing a book on marketing itself. And what I realized is when you do something different, it's guaranteed to get noticed. There's a part of our brain called the thalamus. It directs things to the prefrontal cortex. But our brain is designed when something unexpected presents itself to give it our, it's our undivided attention to qualify it as a threat. We first focus on threats and then opportunities. And this happens in milliseconds. So our brain basically looks at everything and says more noise, filter out, filter out. And then something unexpected presents itself. There's something wiggling in the grass. Mine is that a snake or did I just drop a pen and bounce right. around? We have to do different. And if we do different, we are guaranteed attention. But the funny thing is in the doing different, there's this great fear. It is wired into humanity that one of the most painful experiences in life is not being accepted, being kicked out by our community. You're not wanted here. And when we do different, there is a high potential for not being wanted. Our tribe around us says, oh, you're a weirdo now. So that fear of rejection and being an outsider supplants us from doing what will get noticed. So that's what we have to overcome. And I'll tell you this, there's another tribe waiting for you. When you do different, you, you'll get accepted by new people. New people invite you in. I love that idea. Yeah. You have a new tribe waiting for you. That's really interesting. I'd love to dig into this profit first ethos and this idea of paying yourself first. Because, you know, profit can be quite a dirty word if you're creative. But it's the heart of everything that the profit first system is. And I was telling Matt earlier that what's interesting is you have spin-off groups. Like, you know, people, this is your book. And yet on Facebook, I found accountants who've set up profit first for creatives and profit first for X. And yeah. so it can be applied to lots of different types of people. Could you tell us what profit first means and give us that bird's eye view? The bird's eye view is this. We, we've been told that profit comes last. It's the bottom line. So traditional accounting is you have your sales, the income you generate from the work you do, you subtract expenses you incur, and what's left over is profit. It makes logical sense, but behaviorally, it doesn't work because profit is a leftover. In fact, it's even in our vernacular. We call it the bottom line or the year end. Let me start by saying this, is that every one of your readers wants you, they're thirsty for you to be profitable. They are starving for you to be profitable. Now they'll never say the words. They'll never say, hey, can you charge me more for your work? Can you double the fees? They won't say that. But what they will say is, I want the best work you can produce. I want to read content that changes my life, that impacts me, that makes me think. They will say, I want you focused on doing your best. They don't want you distracted, worrying about how you're going to survive. And that's the great irony. So many authors poets, writers are simply just trying to scratch by to survive and therefore they can't get their best. There's this constant worry. They're going to sleep not thinking about their next great creation. They're going to sleep saying, holy shit, how am I going to eat tomorrow? Shame on us. To give our best, we must make sure that we're satisfied, that we're served and protected. And that's what profitability does. It allows you to protect yourself. So our clients, our readers thirst for that. So you have to be profitable. The Technique to do this is the pay yourself first principle applied to your business. Every time you have income coming in from the work you sell, you subtract a predetermined percentage of that money as profit, hide it from yourself, and then run your work off the remainder. And what this does is it starts accumulating profit. We fall victim to this thing called Parkinson's law. 
Parkinson theorist from 1950 studies uh, human behavior and notices that as a supply increases in its availability, we consume more of it. I just got a deadline from my publisher. I have a September 1st deadline for the first draft of my new book. I suspect I'll get it done October 31st, September 1st. If my publisher said, we are on fire here, we need this by mid-August, Mike, I suspect I get my first draft done miraculously by mid-August. You see, as the supply increases or decreases less time, I start moving more rapidly, more efficiently. More time, you know, I start playing around with it. So what Parkinson's law said is we have to actually control the supply. If there's more money, the more money that comes in, the more we'll spend. And that's what I see in so many business owners. You've got to realize we are all business owners. You may be a business of one, but you are a business owner. And as the income increases, perhaps over time, you'll notice almost uncannily your expenses increase the exact same rate. That's Parkinson's law. So we need to put in this gap. As income increases, we're subtracting out profit and hiding away. That forces this gap. We can only spend up to this limit. Now we have profit accumulating. That's the essence of profit first. Us as freelancers, writers, creatives, if we were to start to implement this, where would you recommend us to begin? Is it just the next check that we receive, the next bit of income, we then take a percentage and put it. I know there's a lot of, there's the account system in the book and all that stuff, but yeah, where would you advise us to begin to start kind of thinking and treating our, our finances from a profit I'll perspective? I'll give you the ultimate hack. And uh, if you listen and execute on this today, my promise to everyone that does this, you will be permanently profitable. You just have to do it. And that's the courageous step. You First, you must start immediately. I think there's a Chinese proverb, when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? When's the second best time today? Same thing with profit first, is when we start accumulating this profit starting today, it will accumulate more and more over time. In the book, I tell you the methods to extract it, to reward yourself and so forth. But the, the essence is this. Step one is call your bank. Maybe you can't visit them with COVID, so a lot of them do this over line, online now. And set up one additional bank account at your current bank. Make it a savings account and nickname it profit. It'll take 20, 30 minutes, the most. It is the best 20, 30 minutes you'll invest in your life. Step two is any income starting today. So that's to answer your timing starts today. Any income that comes in, take a percentage of it. And we're going to start with 1% because 1% is negligible on the impact of how you've been running your life and your business. So if a thousand dollars comes in or a thousand pounds comes in, I take 1% of that. I'm taking 10 pounds. Like 10 pounds is nothing. You, you put that in your savings account. And if you can run your business off a thousand pounds, you can run it off of 990. But what is significant and extraordinary is now you've started to have a cash profit accumulating, perhaps for the first time in your life in your business. And you see that accumulating and you do this every time and that money starts growing. It's like, wow, what if I change this to 2% or 3% and we start building the profit muscle? That's how you get started with the system. And it, it evol- there's much more to it, but that is such a low threshold that we have no excuse not to do it. So I was in the camp that I had read this maybe a few years ago because everyone everyone in sort of entrepreneurial groups talked about this concept and the minute you said to set up a bank account I was like oh do I really right. have to do I really have to put a nickname I yeah. I now I mean I, I cannot speak highly enough of this system there's a label for what you did for that behavior of oh, do I have to do this it's called being a human being it's called <laughs> being a human being and that is a very natural response the thing is we are very uh, resistant to making change for ourselves. We just want whatever we've been doing just to start working magically, and it won't. 
there is this minimal effort that's required is setting up this one account. It's like, oh, let's go to the bank and so forth. But the beautiful thing is once that thing is set up, we can continue to do what we've done. We can revert back to our original behavior. Most people do what's called bank balance accounting. I did it today. I logged into my phone, checked out how much money I had in my business and said, okay, here's how much I have to spend. Most entrepreneurs, most people, most creatives do not do accounting. They don't read their income statement. I don't know how to read a balance sheet. I know the word, but I don't know really what it does. And cash flow, it's confusing. Even though my accountant says, do those things, you'll know how to run your business, I log into my bank account. So this system, since we do it at our bank, it intercepts our behavioral path. You log into your bank account, you see how much money is available, you can take action uh, by transferring that 1%, and now it's in front of you every single day. Are there any other habits you think that follow from that? So one thing is to make sure we put aside that money. Is there any other specific? Oh, yeah, yeah, there definitely is. In Profit First, there's what I call the five foundational accounts. What happens is money flows in from the work you do. You're going to allocate it to different intended uses. It's the envelope system. My mother's German. She came from Germany when she was 25, met my father, started the family. I say that the envelope system came from Germany. It probably didn't. I suspect somewhere in Europe. What my mother did was like she worked at a local factory part-time, and when she'd get cash in her check, she'd divide money up into different categories. One of them said food all in German, of course. One was rent for the house of the mortgage, ultimately. Another one was for fun money. Well, when my mother went food shopping, she would grab the food envelope and she'd work with that. And she always had enough money. And I'm not saying she had the same amount of money. That's the key. But she had the money that was in the envelope and would work with that. Sometimes she was sick, work, work less hours, so there was less money. And it was you know a very meager meal. Other times, it was a lot of money and she would splurge which for German, by the way, is liverwurst, which if you don't know what that is, the <laughs> translation to English is disgusting. It's freaking <laughs> disgusting. And uh, so we'd have disgusting for dinner, but that's the envelope. So what we do with Profit First is we, this is an envelope system at our bank. You have one account for profit, but another account for tax. The biggest bill that we're least prepared for in our business is the tax. That bill comes and we're like, oh, how much? I didn't think I owe anything. And then we have to find the money. Our business, regardless of the formation of business you have, your business can pay your taxes for you. And so when money flows in, we allocate a percentage of money to pay that tax. And we have to realize we are all agents basically for our government, the tax collector uh, part of our government. I've yet to visit any country in this world where the government doesn't stick its long, sticky fingers into our business and pull money out. So that's a responsibility we have. When the money comes out of our pocket, we experience this behavioral response called loss aversion. If I give you $20 and I say, oh, sorry, uh, give me $10 back, there's actually a sense of loss aversion. You just got 20 and you're like, he just took 10 back. What the, what the F? But if I simply give you $10 and say, enjoy, it's like, oh, cool. I got $10. In both scenarios, you got $10. Yeah, but when you get something is pulled away, there is this disappointment. When we get this money, we make money and then the tax man comes a knock and we're, damn it. And it's frustration and scary. When the business reserves the taxes for us and hides it, and we get what we get paid through profit and these other accounts, when the tax bills do and the business then pays it, we don't feel that loss aversion. So that's another behavioral mechanism. Yeah, brilliant. I can speak again about how useful all of that has been for me. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that you do that. And we definitely recommend Mike's 
book Profit First. So it goes into a lot more details on it, the the different accounts and all that stuff. And and what's really generous about that that book is you you're like, here's what you need to do now. And I'm gonna wait. <laughs> I'm waiting on the other side of this book until you do it, which is really, really helpful. So thank you for that in that book. You're welcome. And if I may, I we're talking offline. If I can I'd like to boldly ask something about the book. If everyone is listening in right now, if you're willing to get a copy of the book, I'm, I'm sharing this for actually for three reasons. And if you're willing to get it right now as we do this live, and just put in the chat if you you buy a copy. And if you already have a copy, if you're willing to buy a second copy for a colleague or friend, if it's had an impact on you. I'm asking because of this. It is the most impactful book I've written, and I've devoted my life to uh, improving the financial stability of, of businesses. It's, it's probably 25 US. I think it's the most cost-effective way I can serve you. The second reason I'm asking, I have a selfish reason why I'm asking you to do this now, is that if you're willing to get the book on Amazon UK or wherever you're, you, I'm not even sure the site where you are, but if you're willing mm-hmm. to get on Amazon right now, what it does is it triggers the Amazon engine to promote it to other entrepreneurs. It is the greatest way to spread the word. So if you're willing to get a copy right now, you do buy a copy, just post in the chat. I, I see it already, Nicholas, I, I'm in. Awesome. Thank you for doing that because that it will serve you, I promise, but you're also serving me. There's two more things that I want to share is uh, Nicholas, everyone, Andrew's getting one. Awesome. Let me tell you something. Um, let me grab the book. I, I made, um, I, I asked Matt to get a book as well. Cause yeah, I is- <laughs> Here, here's what I'll do. Um, put email me. My name's right there. It's Mike at Mike McCallowitz. When you get the book, you'll see my name. Email me Mike at Mike McCallowitz.com and just put LWS rules because it does in the subject line with as many exclamation marks as you can. <laughs> I'm going to uh, send you a goodie uh, that I think you'll really enjoy. Um, some bonus uh, material, which is a, a presentation I did around Profit First that will serve you. Cool. So uh, but email me now. That way I can give you some shout outs. Thank you for everyone that's doing Great. this. That's buying it. Thanks, I also buddy. want, one last thing I want to say about this, and I'll answer more questions, but the last thing I want to share is we all have a responsibility to sell the work, our work. Everyone on this call is doing extraordinary things. There's no question about it. But if we don't boldly ask, and it's justified, this is the most important work I've done. This is the most important work you do. If you don't ask, people will never discover and never experience the change that you can bring to them. So you have to ask. So I encourage you to do also what I'm doing. Ask people to consume what you have because it will change their lives. Mm. And thank you, Gloria, Lisa, Chris, Sue. Thank you. Yes, you can get Audible, any version you want. That's great. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. And this idea of the aphorism of the starving artist and, you know, a lot of artists, a lot of writers, we have resistance to asking. Sometimes we even have resistance to sharing our work. I mean, that's half of the, if one half of the battle is sitting down to write, the other half is saying, here, I made this and I hope you like it. And then I guess there's that layered of like, oh, and here, pay for it too. And I guess personally, have you I mean, have you always been good at like asking and selling or have you had to trick yourself to, to get there quicker or better over the years? Anything that you can share with us? Yes, I will share. So I'm not good at asking in the past, terrified of it because I felt it was slimy. It was smarmy. It's like, why do I need to manipulate people? I met with this guy, his name is Yannick, right when I wrote Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. And after that zero sales day, his name is Yannick Silver. He's an internet marketer, another community that I consider pure slime, you know, but he's this really nice, good person. And I got to know him. He invited me down and uh, I hope he won't mind. He was enjoying a wacky tobacco cigarette, if you know what I mean. 
And we're sitting there and I'm talking about toilet paper entrepreneur. And he says, I got to ask you something about your book. Is that the best work you've done? I mean, is this, did you put your soul into it? I said, yes. He says, compared to your contemporaries, is it better? Will it serve these clients even better? I said, yes. He goes, when you look at the other people that are the kind of slimy marketers pushing stuff, are they offering something that's of less value than your book? I said, yes. And he looks at me and he takes this big drag of marijuana. He goes, and he blows, <laughs> I'll never forget, smoke my face. And he goes, he goes, then you have a fucking responsibility to sell. <laughs> and I don't know if it was the weed or if it was his words. I think it was his words. It made a ton of bricks. We, you, have a responsibility to sell. You see, if we shirk that responsibility, you are being of disservice to clients. Customers will buy. Customers are seeking a solution. They're looking for impact in their lives through your poetry. They are looking to transform themselves to the books you write. They're looking to escape life for a minute through what you've done. And they will find it. But they'll find it from the people who are slimy selling. Sadly, there's some people are taking advantage, particularly now, uh, because books are exploding in popularity to, due to COVID, who are manipulative. You see these books that come out written in 30 days, you know, a, a PDF, these downloads. They're, they're horrible. But the customers are buying them because we aren't stepping up and promoting our good work. So damn it, you have to sell. And that's what's inside me now. Like if I didn't ask you to get profit first now, that's a disservice. You need to be profitable. I know it to my core. And if I didn't offer it to you, if I didn't invite you to do it, you will either seek no solution or not find a solution and struggle, or you'll find something that takes advantage of you. I know Profit First will serve you. I know to my core, and I know it's the most effective way to do it. So I have to sell. I want you to do the same. It's interesting. A lot of what Matt and I, the people that we listen to ourselves and the people we try and be inspired by talk a lot about habits and pain and pleasure are two of the topics that come up quite regularly. Matt, I know you had a question about pain and pleasure. I'd love you to, to ask that. Well, you talk about this in Profit First. So pain can get someone into action, right? Yeah. A health scare, you know, the piggy bank with your daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pain can project us and can throw us into action. But then you also say it needs to be balanced with something pleasurable on the other end. And you, you quote Susie Orman saying, you need to enjoy saving more than you enjoy spending. So this idea of force of pleasure and pain yeah. Do you have any tips on how we can use some of these pain and pleasure principles to help us implement what you're practicing or preaching in, in Profit First to make our, our system easier, to make our financials easier? Yes. I believe that the ultimate motivator for me is a life's mission. I think we have to go back to our pain. And I believe everyone on this call has had a, a moment or sadly moments that have defined you uh, around trauma. I, I was talking with a psychologist and uh, she was explaining to me, there's, there's three elements that drive us and define us. She goes, they're, they're the big T's, the little T's, and these things called dreams. The big T's are the big traumas. My big trauma was that financial moment where, where my identity was to be a provider for my family and I ripped it away. There was such an identity conflict. That moment is emblazoned on me. For others, it's abuse, it's violence, it's financial, it's some kind of discord that does, isn't working. She said, we can grab those moments and say, I will never allow that to happen again to myself or anyone else. And that's what I said. I'm never going to allow anyone else to experience financial trauma. If I, if I can do anything about it, I will. 
And that's what I'm doing. The little T's are the drip traumas. You know, it's when you're in grade school and you get picked on and you're you, every grade, like you get these bullies bullying you and just they keep on dripping or your parents keep saying you're not worth it or you're not going to make it. And, and we keep on getting this drip trauma. And then the same thing happens. That, that moment comes where you say, damn it, I'm not going to allow this to happen anymore. That becomes a defining moment. The other third element is these dreams. One day I will be, I actually, I dreamed of being a garbage man one day that when I was a kid. And I still actually aspire to do that, not as for a career, but I do want to do one day picking up refuse. So if anyone has the opportunity, I'd love to do it. It might be a good way to market your next book. To actually ride around maybe, the- right? Knock, knock, I knock. people's refuse away. And then I put down a book in return and say, enjoy. Um, <laughs> but you know, we have these, these dreams that go unaddressed. And at a certain point, we have to say, damn it, this is a dream I'm going to fulfill. Those, to me... Any way you would arrive at it becomes a life's purpose. I am very clear that I need to, as you saw that sign, I need to do that. I need to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. This struggle, this unnecessary struggle people have. We want to be here serving the world, but we're here trying to scratch and get by. This gap is entrepreneurial poverty. I am devoted to driving that away. We mm-hmm. all need to find that, I believe. That becomes this relentless source. The second thing is we all receive appreciation in, I think, one of five ways. There's a great book called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. It's been translated into five appreciation languages, but it's all the same. Some of us receive appreciation through affirmations. Some of us receive it through gifts and effects. Others receive appreciation through quality time together, and it continues on. Mine happens to be words of affirmation. So what I do in my books is I set up what I call feedback loops. In every one of my books, I invite people to reach out to me to share their experience and I read them all. Those are affirmation loops. I know when I'm having an impact. So when someone reads Profit First, and if you, when you read the book, you'll see this, they'll say, hey, reach out to me, tell me you're in and I'll write back to you. Those are the little pops of pleasure. For me, it's this building. You know, when I started out 12 years ago, I get one email a month. Now I average one email every five to 10 minutes. So much that I can't even read them all anymore. We have a, a person devoted to tracking the emails um, and then gives me a summary at the end of the day. I watch them come through, but she reads them. She gives me a summary so I can write back to people. Every 10 minutes, I'm like, I got to keep working harder. I got to keep working harder because I'm getting this affirmation. That, that's one way, at least for me, that's very effective. Holding on to that. Well, I guess going on the journey to, to discover that purpose, maybe using the, the, the big T, the small T but also the dreams and then keeping that purpose in particular, that feedback loop of the people that you're helping and serving into your inbox that keeps you going drip, drip, drip. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Yes. That's exactly it. Parole, did you, something you just wanted to Just a quick question on pleasure and pain. If you were to apply that specifically to your bank account and how you manage mm-hmm. the money coming in that, you know, maybe small, maybe medium, maybe large, I don't know, whatever it is, how do you use pain and pleasure to control that so that you're better off? Great question. Great question. So there's a difference between denial and delay. With some financial programs, they're focused on denial, meaning money comes in, you hide it away, and you never touch it for the rest of your life until maybe you retire or more likely die and someone else gets the money. That's denial. And at certain points, like, what am I doing to save this money? First, use a delay mechanism where we put money aside, but there's a drip out then of rewards over time. So every 90 days, that money that's accumulating, we take a percentage out, usually about half the money to reward ourselves. I've been doing this now for 12 years, and I've 
I've done every course. I've done about 46, 47 profit distributions. The most powerful one though was the first one, which was interesting. I had 16, one six, $16 in my profit account when I did my first distribution. I'm going to take half of it. I took $8 out. And I remember going to the bank and I'm like, I'd like to withdraw uh, $8, please. And I'm like, and please, in singles. I like to have as much money as possible. <laughs> and so I fanned myself. But I'll tell you why it was such a great celebration. I went to the local coffee shop and I plopped down the money and said, just give me whatever $8 can get me. Which, by the way, is a very small coffee, apparently. Not much. But it was the best coffee of my life for the first time ever. I didn't have to put on a credit card. I didn't have to borrow. It wasn't a company expense. It was just a reward. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my company's going to do this for me again in 90 days. And maybe it won't be $8, maybe 15 or 20 or $100. That recurring mechanism of reward has just built the profit muscle. I, I'll, I'll never stop. Yeah, I've had my first, I've had my first payout from the profit system and I love it. Oh, that's awesome. Would you, did you celebrate with it? Bought a bottle of wine. Oh, wine is awesome. That's awesome. I bet you it was a great bottle of wine. Yeah, it's just definitely. delicious. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. What's great about that is now you've you've manifested a reward where you had to put no additional effort in. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Good job. Thank you. So, Mike, conscious of time, if you have a minute, just want to ask a question around gaining confidence in promoting and selling your written stuff. And I guess there's a kind of a twin question. There is self doubt. Have you dealt with self doubt? How have you built confidence as someone to back yourself when you are trying to promote? You talk about, you do that now more, but that journey to gain self-confidence and, and kind of keep self-doubt at bay. Had any, anything that you did that worked well for you or continues to yes. work well for you? Great question. It's funny. I, when, when the pandemic really hit in our area, March 15th, businesses started shutting down. I reached out to my readers and I encourage everyone to do this too, is reach out to your readers regularly. You are a celebrity to your community of readers. And if you have 10 readers, you're a big deal to those 10 readers. If you have 10,000, you're, you're a big deal to 10,000. You are a celebrity, just like Beyonce or whomever. There is a curiosity about the rest of you. So, so put that out there and stay in contact with them. Build that rapport with them. It's a big deal to them. So I email my re- readers regularly. I do free conferences. I'll just do a webinar and just say, hey, let's, let's talk about whatever. And so I reached out around this uh, March 15th saying, what's the challenges you're facing now? Expecting, you know, they're entrepreneur readers expecting new business challenges. And the number one piece of feedback was my confidence is rocked. So how do I gain confidence? So I actually conducted a study on this. And here is my simple conclusion. I thought there was confident people and unconfident people and that you simply need to try to develop confidence. And that's when I realized that's totally wrong. Every single person has extreme confidence. We all do. It's the application of it. For example, I strongly suspect every one of us on this call right now is extremely confident in drinking a glass of water. I suspect you don't even think about it. You just throw that water back like it's nothing. But I strongly suspect that wasn't how you were when you were a little baby. When you're a little baby and you, your mom gave you that first glass, you're like this. There's water splashing all over. You dribble it on your face. It's all down. <laughs> and what did you do? Are you like, I'm never drinking again. I'm done with water. No. You coughed it out. You, you did whatever. A little, little drip. And then you tried it again. And you did it again. You're such we a storyteller, Mike. You're such what? a storyteller. <laughs> I know. I like to, I know, I like to gesticulate too. I can't. <laughs> but what, what happens is 
there is a recipe for confidence we've all achieved. Water is just one example. But look at areas in your life where you've achieved confidence. Like it's a no-brainer. What did you do to get there? Was it repetition? Was it maybe laughing it off? Do you still sometimes drink water and you spill it? Do you're like, oh my God, I'm an idiot? Or you're like, oh my gosh, that's so funny. Look at the behaviors you follow around what you're confident. And then you simply apply those behaviors to where you lack confidence. I was terrified to do public speaking. I looked at drinking water, for example, and said, oh, it's repetition. It's doing it in small quantities. Don't try to chug down a gallon of water. Just, just take a little sip at a time. So for public speaking, I went to my church. I was terrified, but I asked the pastor of the church. I said, hey, can I be the reader of the Bible verses uh, for the next three months every Sunday? And uh, she said, yeah. And so I became the reader and I was terrified but I started to get in front of a public group. And by the way, it's a small community church. There's like 20 people in the room and I still almost wet my pants. But I practiced, practiced, and started to build confidence following the recipe I found in other applications. So you don't not have confidence. You just haven't applied your recipe to that area yet. Beautiful. On that note, love it, Mike, thank you so much for this generous and entertaining conversation. <laughs> yeah, this, has been, this has been a, a lot of fun. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank Thanks, you so everyone. much. I also just want to share one final thought. I said in the beginning, the world is starving for you. Like I, I hope you appreciate the importance and value you bring to the world. I believe, I really emphatically believe the most impactful people on this planet are the writers. You are needed and you are doing great work. Be relentless in getting the word out because that's the only way we can change this world. So go for it. Amen. Thanks, my friends. I'll see you all. Thank you, Mike. Be well. Take care. Until next time. Good luck. Keep us posted on your next book, all right? Oh, you got a deal. I will. See you all. All Take care. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you'd like to join these weekly interviews live with a chance to ask our guest writers your burning questions, well, you can become a member at londonwriterssalon.com forward slash pound membership. You'll get access to our library of salon interviews and workshops, our private online community, where you'll find world-class resources on the craft of writing and find creative friends. Honestly, we think it's the best writing community in the world, and we would love for you to join us. And if you're a writer struggling to find time to write, like so many of us, you're welcome to join our free virtual hour-long silent writing sprints called Writer's Hour. We hold them four times every Monday to Friday, and all you need is something to write with, a hot drink to cheers us with, and the desire to write. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, and frankly, anyone who just needs to get something done. And you can sign up for free at writershour.com. And we hope to see you there until we write again. Cheers, everyone.